I want to definitely say thank you as we begin to pastors Tim and Matthew. They preached several of these sermons in this series. We've been in an alien invasion series. I am looking forward to the ending of this series, even though I've really enjoyed it. It ends today. In a couple weeks, we're going to start the next series called Twisted Scriptures. And uh, they're going to be preaching some of those as well. It is awesome. It is great. It is a luxury to have men on staff that can preach the Word of God. Uh, we have guys on the elder board that could do that as well. So this is really a luxury that I absolutely am thankful for. And I always learn a lot when those two preach, Matthew and Tim. So it's been a pleasure for me to let them take the pulpit. This is the last one in the alien invasion. We're going to look at a subject of rest. We're going to look at rest. And I think, you know, I'm pretty sure you're all going to agree with me on this. We are in danger, and I mean we as in Christians, we're in danger of losing the ability to have redemptive rest. And this sermon is an effort to correct that, to redeem that, to recover that. So that we could be unique from the world, that we could be different from the world. And that's what this series is about. How can we as Christians who are living among people in the world be unique and be distinct and through the way that we live draw the eyes of the world and the unbelieving world to Jesus Christ. So how we rest, how we have downtime can bring people to Christ. Now listen, and the theology behind our rest brings people to Christ. And that's what we're going to unfold in this message. Philip Melanchthon, you may never have heard of him. He was a great Reformation theologian. If you haven't picked it up by this point in lots of these series that we give, uh, we think really highly of Reformation pastors and Reformation theology. What they did in the midst of all of that persecution is noteworthy. We should be proclaiming that and saying, thank you, God, for the reformers. Philip Melanchthon, I got, you got to hear this. He once said to his friend, whom I know you've heard of, Martin Luther, he said to him, quote, this day you and I will discuss the governance of the universe. What Luther said in response was unexpected. He said, this day you and I will go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. Now already we're hearing a theology behind rest. God is in control. The world does not know that. The world does not believe that. So the world is constantly trying to bring the world within their control. The Christian must be different. Amen. That was weak. The bow that is always bent will soon cease to shoot straight. That's a Greek proverb. I own a crossbow. It's, a, it's an Excalibur crossbow. And one of the things that you learn very quickly is that when you're not in hunting season, take the string off. If you keep the stress on the bow, it will no longer shoot right. So God provided the means for us to unbend the bow. And he called it the Sabbath. Now you might have lots of different views on the Sabbath for today. So just hang in there with me while I unpack a little bit, uncover a little bit of Sabbath theology. And you're going to be able to see, I think, 
the theology below and beneath rest, redemptive rest. Here's what Jesus said. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So when God created the Sabbath, it was for us. It was a gift to us. It was to unbend the bow because the word Sabbath really means rest. But if you really want to be technical about it, it means to cease from labor. That's what the word means, to cease from labor. It was a gift that God gave to his people. He, he designed it so that every living creature... Now, let me, let, me, let me say that a little bit differently. The Sabbath is a gift to us. Why? Because he has designed every single living creature to not be able to perpetually work. When we rest, what we are proclaiming to God, what we are, we are proclaiming to the universe, to the unbelieving world, is that we are finite creatures. We have an end to our strength, and we're okay with that. Because we serve one who has no end to his strength. He is infinite in everything. On the Sabbath, Exodus says, this is a command from God through Moses to the people of God. On the Sabbath, you shall not do any work to cease from labor. Now, watch who is caught up in this. It might be surprising. Not you, not your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or even the sojourner, a word that means a foreigner that's living among you, not even the sojourner who is within your gates, all of them, every single one of those categories were to enjoy the Sabbath gift of rest. The whole community was to stop work. Now that's all right when you're tired, right? We kind of like that when we're tired, but what about when... If you're a farmer, you're in harvest season. Well, God says something to an agrarian society, an agricultural society called Israel. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. In other words, God is saying, listen, do you trust me? Here's the theology behind the Sabbath. Do you trust me? Do you trust that if you take one day off a week, that I can even magnify your harvest, that I can even help you get the plowing done so that you can get the seeds planted. They had two rainy seasons. They had to get the seed planted before the first rainy season. And if they didn't, they weren't going to get a crop. And they're an entirely agrarian society. No Wegmans, no Weisses, no Giants, thankfully, because I don't like that store. But listen, I'm sorry if you work there. But listen, this was faith. This was trust in God. That's the theology of the Sabbath. Now here's the amazing thing. It set them apart from the other nations. Because the other nations had nothing like a Sabbath day. Now you might, if you know your history of ancient cultures and civilizations... You might say to me, well, Pastor Tim, what about the Babylonians? They had a day of rest called the Shapatu. That's the same word, basically. It means to rest, to cease from labor. Listen, they observed it once a month, only on the full moon, and it was considered an unlucky evil day. 
The ancient Greeks and the Romans, they didn't have a Sabbath day. Only the wealthy in Rome, only the wealthy in the Greek societies enjoyed leisure. Everybody else worked perpetually. They never had a day off. And they persecuted the Jewish people for keeping the Sabbath. They pressured them to assimilate or they're going to take their income away. And sometimes even their lives were at stake. Listen, no ancient civilization enjoyed the Sabbath, only Israel. It was a gift from God to his people and all who were within it enjoyed it. But it has consistently been distorted. It's been consistently misconstrued. And the Jewish people knew the ability and the tendency to distort and corrupt the perfect law of God. So they built a fence around the perfect law of God called the Talmud. In fact, it's literally called a fence around. Let me read to you from a rabbi. The Torah is conceived as a garden and its precepts as precious plants. That's the word of God. Such a garden is fenced round for the purpose of preventing willful or even unintended damage. Likewise, the precepts of the Torah were to be fenced round with additional inhibitions that should have the effect of preserving the original commandments from trespass. So what they did, the Jewish people did, they had the best of intentions. They had the word of God, the perfect law of liberty. They had the word of God and they fenced around it in, uh, prohibitions and inhibitions so that you could not break in and disrupt and corrupt and distort the word of God. So when it came to the Sabbath, command of the law, the question became, what is work? What actually counts as work? So the rabbis laid down 39, now you got to get this, get your mind around this, we're just talking about the Sabbath. They laid down 39 what are called fathers of work, quote unquote. And each one of those 39 had dozens of subdivisions. If you took all 39 fathers of work, we're just talking about the Sabbath, and all of these subdivisions, it totals 1,521 commands just about the Sabbath. This is why the rabbis taught so much. They had to memorize so many of these things. 1,521 commands on the Sabbath alone. For instance, the question became, can a man lift up his child on the Sabbath? And the answer was yes. However, here's one of those prohibitions. Unless the child had a stone in his or her hand, for lifting a stone on the Sabbath as a burden. You could not do that. You could only untie a knot on the Sabbath if it could be done with one hand. You could not kill a biting flea on the Sabbath. Listen, today, the Jewish people, very devout, strict Jewish people, pre-rip their toilet paper on Friday, their Sabbath is on Saturday, they pre-rip the toilet paper into sections so they don't have to do that on the Sabbath because that's considered a breaking of the Sabbath. But listen, don't start getting down on the Jewish people because all of the world who has brought into them the Sabbath doctrine has corrupted it. 
many years ago, a person in Scotland was hauled into court for smiling on a Sunday. Became Sabbath-breaking among the Puritans to shave or comb their hair on a Sunday. One sea captain in our United States and New England was put in stocks because after a two-year voyage away from his family, he met his wife at the gate on a Sunday and kissed her, which was illegal to do on a Sabbath. Years ago, a young pastor skated, he lived up in New England, skated in the winter on the ice to church along the frozen roads he created an uproar with the elders of his church and it was sunday it was sabbath day for them and they were concerned that their pastor broke it so the elders had a big meeting where they passionately debated what their ruling should be and then they decided that the pastor could skate to church if he wanted to but he wasn't allowed to enjoy it true story all right so listen the sabbath ceased from labor was intended to be a gift from god but it became a burden with so many rules to obey that you could not possibly do it but does that mean does that mean that we need to obey 1,521 prohibitions against working on Sundays? Does it mean that the Sabbath day is still in effect as it was with Israel, and so every time we mow the lawn on a Sunday, every time we do work on a Sunday, we're sinning? Is that, is that what it means? And the answer is passionately no, and, God, and Paul provides the answer for us. If you want to see this verse on the screen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now listen to this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now you've got to get this. This is the theology behind the Sabbath. The Sabbath meant to cease from labor. It was meaning to rest. It was a shadow now, if you look carefully in the screen behind me, as I move around, you can kind of see the shadow behind me. The shadow is not a corporeal thing. It doesn't have the substance. It's me that has the substance, just like a tree does in the sun as it casts a shadow. Listen, Sabbath, regulations, new moon festivals, all of the Old Testament festivals of the Jews, they were the shadow that pointed to something that has substance, but it wasn't a something, it was a someone, and the name of that someone is Jesus Christ. They were always to be tracing back to the origin of the one who is casting the shadow jesus it's jesus that fulfilled the sabbath the sabbath law was a sign it was a marker to point people to the one who was going to come to give us true rest now i want you to hear that again the Sabbath, to cease from labor, for the Jewish people, God's people, it was, this, it was Saturday of every week. And it was put in place by God as a gift for them 
to be able to unbend the bow, to worship, to enjoy family, to be able to enjoy God's creation, to reflect and praise and meditate on his word. It was a gift for them, but that ended or that found its completion in Jesus Christ. He brings true rest to the soul. So what the Sabbath did, now Jesus does perfectly. Now we're about to see this. This is all preamble. This is introduction and my points are actually brief this evening. So we're about to see true rest in Matthew 11, but I, I need to prepare you for it. And to get ready for it, we've got to go to what seems maybe like an unlikely place in the scriptures, to the cross, on which is nailed Jesus, the Son of God. And you get to John 19.30, Jesus had been on that cross five hours, almost 45 minutes, almost six hours, and he cries out what we're about to read. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's almost to die. It's just about three o'clock in the afternoon. He was put on that cross at nine in the morning. Most believe Friday up on Golgotha, the place of the skull. He was put on at nine in the morning to the cross, nailed through both wrists, nailed through one foot over the other, one spike right through him, crushing the arteries in both wrists, both ankles. He's nailed up there. He cannot exhale. Listen, on the cross, you can breathe in. You can't breathe out. Not until you pull up or push up, and every time you do that, fiery pain is going to go from the brain down to the origin of the nail sites, back to the brain, and it's going to be excruciating. And not really, not once does he cry out in pain, but at noon, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But all of a sudden, at three o'clock in the afternoon, just a tick or two before it, he cries out, it is finished. Three words, of course, a lot of you know in the Greek is tetelestai. It's, it's a phenomenal word. I encourage you to study it. But where have you heard that word before, finished? Well, I'm going to get you thinking about that. Let me give you a little bit more preparation. What was finished? What was finished was everything that needed to be done by God in order to save us. That was done. Jesus completed it in his death. He started it. Listen, this plan was before he created the universe. He knew he was going to die for us. He knew we were going to turn away from him. He came as a baby in the womb of Mary, conceived there by the Spirit of God. He was birthed like we're birthed. He grew up like a human being because he was fully human. And he grew up and he began to realize because the Spirit of God began to show it to him. He grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. He grew in understanding. I think, he, I think it's a divine gift that the Father gave through the Spirit of God. He now knows and he knew early on his full purpose. Arguably, he always knew. But listen, he's growing in wisdom. He's growing in stature. And he's perfectly obedient from day one. Now listen, when's the first time you sinned? I'm pretty sure you don't remember it. I tell you the first time that I realized my oldest son sinned, and I've told you this before, it's when he was reaching for an outlet, 
And I looked at him and I said, Matthew, don't touch. That's dangerous. And he brought his hand back and then he looked at me right in my eyes and reached right for it waiting to see. It was six months old. He is an incredibly good sinner. <laughs> Got that from his father. Okay. See, I'm learning. I'm growing in wisdom and stature as well. So he came because something needs to be done to take sinners who are born sinners, and it doesn't take us long to learn to choose to be sinners. So we're by nature and by choice sinners, and it creates this gap between us and a holy God. What can bridge that gap? Well, Jesus never sinned. He completely kept the law, all of the law, not most of it. He kept every single bit of the law of God, and he kept it to the standards of God. Now, you might be able to say, listen, I have never murdered anybody. That's awesome. Please try to continue that. <laughs> However, have you kept the thou shalt not murder to the holy standard of God. Have you ever been really furiously angry at somebody? Jesus says in your heart that's murder. So if you've been furiously angry like I have, you've murdered. In other words, you've fallen short of the perfection of the standard of God in maintaining and preserving life. So we're all sinners by nature and by choice, but Jesus never sinned. He kept everything to the very perfection of the holiness of God. And he went up on that cross as the holy, spotless Lamb of God. And his death was meritorious. In other words, it counted for something. And what it counted for is the absolution, the removal, the, clean, the cleansing of every single human being that will ever come to him in faith. God, will you forgive me? Because I now realize I'm a sinner. And I need your salvation. That's what Jesus did. When he died on that cross, when he yelled out, it is finished, three words in English, one in Greek, what he was saying is this, every single thing that needed to be done to save sinners, I've completed now, where have you seen that word finished before? Where's the first time you've seen the word finished in the Bible? And you might be going with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So all of a sudden, when Christ says it is finished, the theologian that knows his or her Bible connects it back to the powerful, creative work of God that ushered in the Sabbath. So Christ is our Sabbath, and he came to give us rest, rest that nobody can give to the soul other than him. And you get to see the fruits of his finished work. Hebrew says that, he fin that God finished creation and rested. Jesus Christ finished on the cross and then offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. So let me say that a little bit better. Just as God finished creation, Jesus died on that cross. And then he enjoyed being back with his father sitting down at his right hand. Do you realize that no priest of Israel ever could sit down on duty? Not one, ever. 
They couldn't. Because you're always going to sin again, and that sacrifice that you just gave, gave, those two turtle doves, if you were poor, that took care of yesterday's sins. But you've got today's and tomorrow's sins coming, and you've got to bring another sacrifice. But not with Jesus. He died once for all time. It is enough by a single sacrifice to resolve and take away every one of our sins as you come to him in faith. And what you get in return is rest for your soul. Let me show it to you, and it's beautiful. And Matthew read it at the beginning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's get your Bibles open. Matthew chapter 11, I just read to you, 28 through 30. I'm going to give you three brief points. We're not going to be that long on this. The first is this. True rest comes from only one source. There is no other source but Jesus. No human mind. Now listen, I've got I to get you ready for this. So get, that's why I want your Bibles open, because you should be in Matthew 11 right now, verse 28, but let me get you to back up to verse 25. And while you're turning there, let me tell you this, not one mind could possibly fully understand the relationship between God's sovereign will and salvation, God's choosing us, and our responsibility to respond. And there's nobody that really can get that down. I've read a lot of books on this. A lot of theologians have given their best attempt at it. I've heard a lot of sermons on it. I've tried to nuance this. I've tried to work through this. I'm going to tell you right now, nobody's finite mind can totally grasp that. How can, it be, how can salvation be of God's sovereign will, yet how can the Bible hold us responsible? Somehow they go together. How they go together perfectly, well, I can get maybe part way there, but I can't get all the way there, and I don't think anybody can. But here's what the Bible says. Jesus prayed to his Father, verse 25, you, had hit, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, now look at this, and revealed them to little children. Such was your gracious will. It's the will of God, his gracious will, to reveal. Unless God's revealing, listen, nobody can come to Christ. They have to have God revealing. There is a sovereignty in, in, in salvation. However, keep going, verse 27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's a sovereign choice. Look at the next verse, or in verse 28. But Jesus says, come to me. Listen, if you don't come to Jesus, then there's not the full realization because verses 28 through 30 is about salvation. It's about finding soul rest. You've got to come to Jesus. So listen, I could preach to you for 20 years, and I could preach the word of God to you, and unless God is opening your eyes, you have no hope of coming to him. But when God is opening your eyes, you've got every responsibility to understand that today is the day of salvation. Don't say, you know what, I'm really convicted, I'm really almost feeling hot because something's going on inside of me but I'm going to put it off for another week you put it off for another week and you just put off your salvation for another week 
you got to respond. Yes, God chooses. Yes, God sovereignly, graciously wills our salvation. But there is a human responsibility. You must come to Jesus. And that's exactly what he says. And he invites a particular type of people. Look what it says. Those who labor and are heavy laden. Now, I've been pastoring for a long time. Man, I've seen some heavy laden people. I have seen some weary people. They've tried everything in the world. They've tried to please God. They've tried to become right with God in their own effort. They've tried to listen to what preachers say. They try to listen to what uh, self-help gurus on TV try to say. And it just keeps leaving their soul emaciated and in famine. There's no ability in our own power to be right with God. You just can't do it. Listen, you're a sinner like I'm a sinner. And sinners trying to make themselves right are like taking mud-covered hands trying to clean the bug splatters off your windshield of your car. It just doesn't work. You actually make things worse. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. They are bowed down with the weight of their soul, and nothing has untied their burdens. And Jesus says, you're the ones. If that's you, now listen, let me speak to you. Me personally to you. Forget you're here with a bunch of people. Let me just speak personally to you. If you are laboring and your soul is weary and you are heavy laden, Jesus is speaking to you. You're the one that Jesus says, I can free you from that. But I'm the only one that can free you from that. And yes, I am choosing, I want to free you from that, but you've got to come to me. You've got to respond. You know what was happening to the Jewish people when Jesus was walking the planet? The Pharisees, Matthew 23, and the scribes. Scribes were basically Pharisees who were in the lawyer track of their careers. They're Jewish attorneys. Pharisees are Jewish pastors. Jesus condemns both of them by pointing out in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So here's all the things. This is called moralism. If you've sat under a legalistic preacher, then you've tasted and drank deeply from moralism. Here's all the things you've got to do if, in order for God to be pleased with you, and you walk out of here sometimes with some motivation. Yes, I can do something. I'm going to do it then by Monday or Tuesday, you've fallen flat on your face and all you feel is guilt and conviction and despair. That's moralistic preaching. And that's the scribes and that's the Pharisees and they were heaping up 1,521 rules for how to, how to obey the Sabbath. You know that on the Sabbath in Judaism, that's Jewish religion in the time of Jesus, a person could write a two-letter word, but they couldn't write a three-letter word because that then would be labor. These are the rules that were burying them 
under such a weight that Jesus says, listen, if you want to be freed from that, you cannot make God pleased with you by obeying those. You can only be, be right with God through my death. It is finished, I cried. That means I've done everything that needs to be done to make your father happy with you. So come to me in faith and you'll enjoy that as well. Weary, in your text, refers to internal exhaustion. Heavy laden is the external burden called works righteousness. All the things that people believe that they've got to do in order to be right with God. That's self-righteous works. And the invitation from Jesus is there for everyone who is finally weary by all the effort to try to make God happy with you that are futile, they will never work. He's saying, come to me, stop trying to make yourself right with God, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's look at point number two. We're going to look a little bit more at this. True rest comes when we submit to Christ. Now, I told you there's a human responsibility to salvation. To come to Christ, one must see him not as an equal, but as our Lord. In the Greek, kurios. There was a song about that in the 80s. I think it hit number one on the charts. You have to come to Jesus not as an equal, not as your best friend, not as a man upstairs, not as your brother as Lord. But never a Lord will you find anywhere else, for look what it says about him. He is gentle and lowly in heart. So the clear call to submit is here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now let me tell you what a yoke was, because there's two, probably two different pictures in your mind forming, even as I say that word. For some of us, you're thinking a yoke, a wooden stick that is curved around the shoulders that one puts on their shoulders and you dangle a bucket of water from each end. That is a yoke. That's not this yoke. The yoke you want to picture, as Jesus is saying this, is the yoke that goes over two animals as they are then tied to a plow or to the grist mill where they walk around in circles and a, a um, beam, they're tied to a beam and it rotates this stone I forget what it's called, but it crushes the grain. It's how they make their flowers, their flour, rather than flowers for their bread. So a yoke was what farm animals were tethered to. Now there's an ancient legend, by the way, this is really interesting, that Jesus, being a carpenter, made the best yokes of anyone in all of Galilee. That above the shop door in which he worked, this is a legend, there was a sign that read, my yokes fit well. Now, now I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you that. The yoke that was made for the oxen or the donkeys were always custom hewn. They would measure the shoulders of the oxen. They would measure of the ox. They would measure the, the shoulders of the mule. And they would then hand-hewn and customize the yoke for that so that it did not rub and bristle the, the animals. They, were, they cared about their animals. 
and they custom fit the yoke so that it wouldn't chafe, so that it wouldn't bring discomfort. Now there's something very important about the yoke, and that is the way that a stronger animal would always be yoked with a weaker animal so that the stronger animal can teach the weaker animal how to respond to the commands of the plowman and how to do the work that was ahead of it. So they always brought not two equally strength animals together. There was always a stronger one to a weaker one yoked together so that the weaker one would learn obedience. So the word yoke in metaphorical language at the time of Jesus meant submission and obedience to a master or a teacher. In fact, I'll show it to you. One rabbi wrote these words, put your neck under the yoke and let your soul receive instruction. So take my yoke upon you is Jesus saying, come to me. You're not going to get unwearied. You're not going to get unburdened any other way. I am the only way to the Father. I am the only way to salvation. But you've got to come under that yoke. You've got to submit, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to help you understand how to work and how to labor in the kingdom of God. The word learn, now look at your text if you would. The word learn from him, that phrase learn from me, the word learn is almost identical to the word disciple. That's really important. I would underline that in your Bible and I'd put in the margin disciple. Because that's what is, this is discipleship. It's salvation that leads inextricably, unavoidably, immediately to discipleship. you got to learn from Jesus after you come to him. So Jesus invites people who are weary of trying to please God in their own effort. He invites them to come to him, submit to his yoke of instruction, so that his strength and his wisdom could teach them how to live out their salvation. And if you do, you're going to find yourself yoked not to a stronger person that's going to yank you around the field. You're going to be yoked to someone whom he says is gentle and lowly in heart. And here's the beautiful picture. The strength of Jesus is already under the yoke. He invites you to come join him. Listen, you can do all things. We're going to probably untwist this one in the next series. But what that really means, at least in part, is everything that God asks you to do, he's going to give you the power to do it. He will never ask us to do anything that he's not willing to give us the strength to fulfill it. He's inviting us under the yoke under which he's already there. His power is helping us labor. His power is helping us to work so that we can realize not toil, Pastor Matthew brought this out, not fruitless, not unending, soul-wearying toil, but the labor that is redemptive, that can bring glory to God and satisfaction to the soul. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, 1 John 5, 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. Listen, if you feel like this Christian life is so ridiculously hard that it's burdensome because you're not yoked to Christ. You might have been saved, but you forgot to come under the yoke. You're trying to do it on your own power. When you come under the yoke and he's under it with you, all of a sudden it's light. It's not burdensome. His power is at work in you. So you want to do what he wants you to do, and you no longer want to do what he doesn't. 
And it leads us to the final point. True rest is the Sabbath rest. Only when we come to Jesus Christ can a soul find rest. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does that mean? Rest for your souls. I'm going to invite you to really think on that way beyond this message. Because I'm only going to scratch the surface. I would really invite you to meditate on that. What is rest for your souls? It is certainly, beautifully and wonderfully, cessation from trying to please God and make yourself right with him. That's futile. You cannot do it. Muddy hands, cleaning a bug-splattered windshield. You just smear it, make it muddier. That's what works righteousness does in trying to save yourself. It won't work. But even more, even more, it is permanent, this rest for your souls. It is settled. It is eternal. It's entirely something that an unbeliever has ever experienced. Did you hear that? Christian, you have access to soul rest that an unbeliever cannot even taste it's exclusively ours in christ but the wicked isaiah 57 20 listen this is what the unbelievers souls are like but the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet or they cannot find rest in the niv and its water tosses up mire and dirt That's the ambivalence, that's the storminess, that's the wearying nature when you're not in Christ. Trying to find that rest through the world and you'll never find it. But Christian, we have this rest, we possess it, it's a gift of grace that's been given to us by God through Jesus. So are we the Christians who have forgotten their Sabbath rest, which is a phrase found one time only in the entire New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Listen, if you've entered God's rest, that means you've You put your faith in him, and he has saved you. He's brought you into the family of God. He's adopted you. He's sealed you. But if you've entered into that rest, you've rested from all the effort to try to get God to be happy with your life. It just doesn't work. And all of a sudden, you've trusted that Jesus has done everything necessary for God to be happy with your life. We don't try, Christian, we don't try to make ourselves saved, justified, right with God. We're relying, we're trusting on Jesus, what he has done for us. And the labor, now listen, the labor doesn't mean, listen, if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you don't labor. It doesn't mean you don't work. The labor that we do now is in the fields of God's kingdom. That means you go to work and you realize that there's people going to hell everywhere around you. It's your job to speak the word of God to them, to give them hope. And it's your life that can shine in the darkness so that they can see you and through you see the glory of God shining darkly in this world. 
That's like that when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to your neighborhoods. That's the way we live. We labor in the kingdom of God. How difficult it is, though, to stay under that yoke. I'm going to kind of guess, as I get ready to close in just a couple minutes, that you're probably a little bit like me. I like to do things my own way. I mean, I know, I know what I'm supposed to do, but man, my flesh rears up. I want to do things in my own strength. Suddenly I find the word difficult and wearying. And we're often not any different than the world. We work ourselves a bone, fatigued exhaustion, chasing paychecks and security and retirements and promotions. And we're, we're not really different from the world at that point. Listen, if you don't have a life that is reflected of Sabbath rest through Christ, where your soul is at ease and you're not running after the idols of this world, if you're not at rest like that, then you cannot be a light shining in this darkness. This is utterly critical that we learn to enjoy our rest. Now, now we have the technology to work anywhere, so now we work everywhere. Listen, if you take your laptop on vacation, you're not enjoying the rest that God has given you. Well, that's audacious to say. I'm telling you, the, the Christian does not run after the idols of the world. Because they're at rest with God through Christ. And the way we experience this Sabbath rest more deeply, listen, I'm going to give you some practical things. Take a regular time, a day each week, and then separate it from the rest of the week and reflect and worship and enjoy that day. If you don't do that regularly, listen, your body cannot sustain it. Your soul will become emaciated. You will have nothing to do for God in the labor of the field for the kingdom. And while the world doesn't understand why we take a day and separate it from the rest of the week, the people are, of God are to enjoy this. Not legalistically, not full of prohibitions. I'm not going to give you one thing that you should not do on that day. That is for you to decide in the freedom of Christ. But it should be a day that's celebrated as a gift from God to his people. A day that's seen as a blessing it's not a burden we're a freed people not to live to ourselves but to love god with all of our hearts and love love our neighbors as ourselves a day where we reflect on god's provisions and his blessings of grace and we meditate on his faithful love to us a day where we just absolutely enjoy family and friends and this creation and this world a day where everything gets to point to god more than the other six days because we're slowing down and we can see it more clearly a day where you think on how great god is that he has rescued you from that endless treadmill of trying to work to please him something that's utterly impossible and he gave you life for eternity so we're aliens and strangers here. We live among the people of this world. And they watch, listen, they're watching how we love. They're watching how we endure persecution. They're watching our unity as a church. They're watching our joy and our contentment, our refusal to grumble and complain. They're watching how we work and our attitudes to work. And listen, they're watching how we rest. 
we can live in such a way that the world, 1 Peter 2.12, can see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the powerful way of living in Christ. Amen.